And let's continue in prayer. God, we, uh, we have that little time of uh, response, of uh, giving, of sharing, of tithing, of offering. Uh, we do that gladly, as Sean said. We do that because you've been so good to us. You are so good. And uh, our natural response uh, to your grace is uh, gratitude. So uh, we're grateful, and we ask that you would help us to be grateful. We want to know you. We ask that you would help us to know you. We want to see. We ask that you help us to see. We want to hear and know. Help us to hear and know. In your grace, uh, give us life and give us those things that you have promised for your glory and for our joy. Uh, Through your word, uh, now I ask and pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning Uh, we get to what may be the pinnacle or the high point of Jesus' teaching. But before we get there, I'm going to give you a little recap of the last couple of passages we've looked at in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel leading up to where we are this morning. Luke walked us through the passage in which Jesus healed a blind man. Luke is a doctor, um, Luke Heron, and so that was uh, kind of fun. Verse 22, chapter 8, some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When Jesus had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And here we might expect the blind man to say, yes, I see something. I see spit. That's not what the blind man said. Instead, verse 24, the the blind man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees, though, walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, the man's eyes were, his sight was restored, and he saw everything, Mark says, now clearly. Jesus healed the man's blindness, but the man's healing, his going from blind to sight, happened in stages. It didn't happen all at once, it was a process. And while the central point of that passage is likely, once again, Jesus' power and his authority to heal people, in lots of different ways, Mark's message also is that what God does in a person's life, God's activity or God's action in a person's life, sometimes comes or happens in stages, a little at a time. A person doesn't see, and then a person begins to see, and then a person sort of sees, and then eventually a person fully and completely is able to see. And Mark placed that account of a blind man gaining or being given his sight right there in his gospel because it seems that story or that healing informed what immediately would follow in Mark's gospel about people coming to see and understand in stages. Verse 27. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Jesus' disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And we talked two weeks ago about what that declaration or that affirmation must have meant for Peter, to Peter, what was meant and what Peter understood when he said, you are Messiah, 
Christ anointed one. And how Peter in that affirmation didn't really yet see clearly, fully, completely. Somewhat like the blind man, Peter was beginning to see. And his affirmation represented his beginning to see and understand Jesus. But it was a process and it came in stages until he eventually would see and understand Jesus clearly, fully, completely. And so next, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this. Peter declares to Jesus and everyone present that Jesus was Messiah, Christ, anointed one. And while Jesus seemed to accept Peter's response, or at least not to reject it outrightly, Jesus doesn't exactly completely affirm it either. Peter's vision isn't yet fully clear. Instead, Jesus identified himself as son of man, which was this vague term at best and at the time had a variety of different, very different meanings and could have been a variety of different things in that context. Jesus paints a very different picture. He casts a very different vision for the sort of Messiah and son of man that he would be, one who suffers, is rejected by all of the important leaders in the Jewish faith community, and is, would be killed. And then Peter rebuked Jesus, and Jesus rebuked Peter for rebuking Jesus, saying, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And we need to hear that over and over and over. I do. And now finally, this morning's passage of chapter 8, beginning at verse 34. Listen closely as we continue. This is God's word. These are God's words. Verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, good news, will save it. But what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? Or can anyone give or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then the people who a long time ago put in the chapter breaks in the Bible. Put a chapter break right here and we jump to chapter 9, but it really fits better with the end of chapter 8 than it does with the beginning of chapter 9. So I'm concluding that now. And Jesus said to them, verse 1 of chapter 9, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power has come. For it seems at least two years and maybe longer now, Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others have been following Jesus. They have accepted Jesus' invitation to be his disciples, his students, his apprentices. 
And they have been watching and learning and growing through this whole process years now. But now Jesus seems to offer the clearest vision yet of what is and what will be involved in following him and being his disciples and identifying oneself in him and through him as his, with him. Whoever wants to be my disciple. He's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to everyone. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, their cross. And this is not how headhunters get the attention of potential employees. This is not how businesses or organizations publicize their open positions that they want to fill. This is not how colleges and universities recruit students. I've seen a lot of that over the last year. This is not how that works. This is not even how Army, Navy, and Air Force recruiters meet their quotas. But this is the way of Jesus. To deny oneself is not to deny that one exists, to deny that one has needs, to deny that one has value, to deny that one is hungry, to deny that one is a a being with needs, a personal being. It's not to pour ash and sackcloth all over oneself continually, but it is to deny that oneself is the center of all things, which is called idolatry. It's to deny the force that says me first in all things, to deny oneself, to take up one's cross in our language, culture, vernacular, we talk about bearing one's cross, a cross I have to bear. You may have used that language. But we most often in our culture, in our language, in our use of that term, refer to things that were put upon us, things we didn't choose, hardships, suffering that we didn't choose, things that happened to us. Jesus uses this phrase very differently and talks about willfully, volitionally choosing to take up a cross and carry it. It is a choice. And follow Jesus. Not with a fish on the back of our cars, not with cool t-shirts, not going to church, but to walk in his steps, to imitate him, Paul said. Peter, to mirror his steps, to have the dust of the rabbi all over oneself because we are seeking to do exactly what Jesus did or to live our lives in the manner that Jesus would have lived them were he in our shoes. To deny oneself, to take up one's cross, your cross, my cross, whatever that may be in the name of Jesus, and to follow in his way. Jesus' disciples had come to know as one Jesus. They'd come to know Jesus as one who had the power and the authority to cast out evil spirits, unclean spirits, demons, to heal diseases, to cause the lame to walk and the blind to see, to multiply bread, to calm the seas. And now they're understanding and they're seeing Jesus and his way was becoming even clearer. Jesus would suffer, be rejected, and killed. That was one thing. But now Jesus says that anyone, anyone, everyone who wants to follow him, who wants to entertain that idea, who would take on his name, who would today identify themselves as Christian, 
is also called to such a path, to such a life, to such a destiny. And the church needs to hear this. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. It's the pinnacle and centerpiece of Jesus' teaching. The often overlooked and ignored and avoided and resisted pinnacle and high point of Jesus' teaching. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a person, he bids that person come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and professor and theologian who did not run away from Hitler in the Third Reich, but instead resisted Hitler third on, straight on, head on, which eventually led to Bonhoeffer's own imprisonment and him being executed at the very young age of 39, only days before the Nazi prison in which he was held was liberated by the Allies. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. He wrote years before. There is so much injustice in our world today. So much injustice as there was in 1939 and 40 and 41 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. To what is God calling us? What does it mean to follow him? What do we do with such a vision? What do you and I do with such a vision? We desperately, I'm speaking for myself now and maybe also you, we desperately want to live. We live in a culture that honors, that promotes, that almost worships life. We want to live long. We want to live the way we want to live, comfortably, happy, with abundance, in abundance, safely, securely, and there is nothing wrong with any of that. Why would there be anything wrong with any of that? And the world has said that I can have both and do both, follow Jesus, and have everything I want. And the church has also said, I can have both and do both, deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus, and have everything I want, everything the world offers, everything. And yet Jesus is crystal clear, spiritual reality. Maybe just reality, but I'll say spiritual reality. Works in exactly the opposite way than we expect, than one might expect, than seems natural, logical, practical, feasible. Everything. And yet Jesus is crystal clear. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The Greek, oh, here's your Greek word for the day. The Greek word translated life here, or in some translations, soul, is the Greek word suke, which from which we get the English word psyche. And in Greek can mean a lot of things, starting with breath, life, soul, spirit, the breath of life the seat of one's feelings, one's heart, one's mind, all of one's self, person. Whoever wants to have, retain, possess, keep, preserve their life, breath, soul, spirit, heart, and I do. 
will lose, destroy, abolish, put an end to, kill, cause to perish their own life. But whoever loses their life for Jesus and for the gospel will in fact save it. Wow. And I have to answer, I have to ask, and I have to answer this question for myself. Do I really believe it? Do I believe this? We say as the church, we believe in Jesus. Do we believe Jesus? Do we, we believe that what he said was true? Do we believe that he was reliable? Do we believe that he was trustworthy, that his words, that his teaching are trustworthy and true? Is this a reasonable philosophy of life? Every one of us has a philosophy of life, whether we're in touch with it, aware of it, can describe it, can pinpoint it. Every one of us has a philosophy of life. Is this a reasonable philosophy of life? Is this a tenable strategy for raising kids? Is this a leap of faith you and I are willing to make? On the surface, at first glance, this is not the best way to grow a church. This is not a great way to attract new members. Do we believe that what Jesus said was and is true? That what he said and says about reality is true and truth? And if so, what are we gonna do with that truth? Huh. There is for some of us a reality at work in which we're trying to gain the whole world. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, just a show of fingers. Or as much of it as we can gain through money, experiences, success, travel, reputation, image, power, opportunities, whatever. And yet Jesus asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? What good is it for a person to gain the whole world, to get everything there is to get and have and possess and enjoy and lose their very soul, self, spirit, breath? Jim Elliott, the young missionary to the Warani people in Ecuador in the 1950s, wrote in his journal years earlier before he traveled down there to South America, before he and his fellow missionaries were killed by the Warani people. As they prepared to go to these so-called savage people with the gospel, good news of God's love and Jesus he wrote in his journal these words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wise is the person who gives up what they cannot keep in order to gain what they cannot lose. Wise is such a person. Do we believe that? We believe Help our unbelief, we read in Mark's gospel. As it turns out, Jim Elliott was influenced by the faith and the life of a woman who lived long before he did, overlapped by a little, a woman named Amy Carmichael. Born in a small village in Ireland in the year 1867 as the first of seven siblings, Amy's parents were both devout Christians. 
Amy attended the Harrogate Ladies College for four years in her youth. Amy's father moved the family to Belfast when she was 16, but he died two years later. In Belfast, the Carmichaels founded the Welcome Evangelical Church. In the mid-1880s, Carmichael, Amy started a Sunday morning class for the Shawleys, girls who worked in the mills, in the church hall of Rosemary Street Presbyterian Church. The mission, her mission, her ministry, her Sunday school grew quickly to a couple of hundred girls. Amy continued at the welcome evangelical church until she received a call to work among the mill girls of Manchester in 1889, from which she moved on to overseas missionary work despite suffering from neuralgia, a disease that made her whole body weak and achy and often put her in bed for weeks on end. At the Keswick Convention in 1887, she heard a man named Hudson Taylor founder of the China Inland Mission, speak about missionary life. Soon afterwards, she became convinced of her own calling to missionary work. She applied to the China Inland Mission and lived in London at the Training House for Women there where she met author and missionary to China, Mary Geraldine Guinness, who encouraged her to pursue missionary work. Carmichael was ready to sail for Asia at one point when it was determined that her health made her unfit for the work. She postponed her missionary career with China Inland Mission and decided later to join the Church Missionary Society. Initially, Amy traveled to Japan, staying for 15 months, but fell ill there and returned home. After a brief period of service in Sri Lanka, she went to Bangalore in Italy for her health and found her lifelong vocation there. Her most notable work was with the girls and the young women, some of whom were saved from customs that amounted to forced prostitution. Hindu temple children were primarily young girls dedicated to the gods, then usually forced into prostitution to earn money for the priests. Families often sold their children to the temples if they did not want them or if they needed extra money and fewer children to feed themselves. Carmichael founded the Donovor Fellowship in 1901 to continue her work. This fellowship transformed Donovor into a sanctuary for over 1,000 children, mostly girls, who would otherwise have faced a bleak future. Carmichael often said that her ministry of rescuing temple children started with a girl named Prina. Having become a temple servant against her wishes, Prina managed to escape. Amy provided her a shelter and withstood the threats of those who insisted that the girl be returned either to the temple directly to continue her sexual assignments or to her family for more indirect return to the temple. The number of such incidents grew and grew, thus becoming Amy Carmichael's new ministry and calling the way that she followed Jesus. When the children were asked... What drew them to Amy, they most often replied, it was love. It was love. Ama, which is Tamil for mother, referring to Amy. Ama loved us. Ama loved us. Respecting Indian culture, members of Amy's organization wore Indian attire, 
gave the rescued children Indian names. Carmichael herself dressed in Indian clothes. She dyed her skin with dark coffee and often traveled long distances on India's hot, dusty roads by foot just to save one child from suffering. While serving in India, Carmichael received a letter from a young lady who was considering life as a missionary, asking, what is missionary life like? Carmichael wrote back, Amy wrote back, missionary life is simply a chance to die. In 1931, a a fall severely injured Amy, and she remained bedridden for much of her final two decades in India. She died in India in 1951 at the age of 83 after having served in India for 55 years without furlough. She asked that no stone be put over her grave at Donover. Instead, the children she had cared for put a birdbath over it with a single inscription, Amma which means mother, because she loved them. Ah, it sounds like bad news. These verses, this section, Jesus' call, Jesus' invitation, his announcement, his request, it just, part of it sounds like bad news. But for Carmichael, it wasn't bad news, but good news. A chance to die was a chance to live. A chance to die, an opportunity. We would fear, most of us, and run from. She ran to because she understood the words and the heart and the way of Jesus in his upside-down kingdom, which has not changed one iota in the last 2,000 years, though we've done our best to resist and ignore and postpone his call on our lives, some of us. That last verse that I read earlier from chapter eight that leaked into chapter nine and became chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. I'm gonna do another memorial service this week. All too often, again, we think of the kingdom of God as what happens out there in the future after we die when we're done with these bodies. No, Jesus said, the kingdom of God, he came announcing at the beginning of Mark's gospel and talked more about it than any other thing throughout. And now he clarifies again what this kingdom is. They will see it before they taste death. What is he talking about? He is talking about his death. He is talking about his death on a cross, which is the quintessential example or model or reality on earth of his kingdom, dying so that others might live. And he wants to prepare his disciples to understand this, to embrace this, to benefit from this, to enjoy this, to live this. The kingdom of God is most clearly manifest in the cross of Christ, in the death of the king, because there will be resurrection.
Bonhoeffer wrote, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old person which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a person, he bids that person come and die. This is not bad news but rather gospel and good news and hope and peace and love, not just for us, but for the world through God's people, from top to bottom and left to right. May God be glorified in this. May he give us the grace to go and to live in the way of Jesus, the good way. Let's pray. We confess, God, I do, maybe for others here and at home, that we don't want to die. We don't want that. It's not what we envision. It's not how we've been trained. It's not in some ways natural. It goes against every fiber and thread of our being, our DNA. And yet we follow one and have life in him and joy and peace and hope in one who walked into death, head on, face up, in love and with love. Give us the courage to not just appreciate what he said and listen to it, but also by your grace, with your help and your spirit, to walk in it. You are so good. You have been so good to us. Continue to be honored and glorified in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in the church, in the world. Great King of heaven and earth. Amen.